Please be seated. Good evening to you. And we turn uh, this evening to Luke chapter 17, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we left off uh, at the end of verse 10 and pick things up in verse 11 with the famous account of Jesus' healing uh, of the ten uh, lepers. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So we remember that Jesus is now at the uh, very near the end of his life before his death, burial, and resurrection. He is making his final journey uh, to the city of Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover and he'll be crucified at the end of, of this uh, journey. He's making his way from the Galilee through the area of Samaria, which was uh, kind of a, a lot of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans on his way uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, as he, and you think, and as he's making his way, he's fully aware that this is it. This is the, the time in which he is going to give his life for the forgiveness of our sins, a pretty weighty uh, thing that he was uh, bearing at the time. And as he entered into a certain village, uh, somewhere there in the area of Samaria, uh, there met him ten men who were lepers, and that was an incurable disease in the ancient world. Uh, it's called Hansen's disease today, it's still incurable, but they're able to arrest the progress of it. But it was a death sentence, and uh, concerning these lepers, we're told by Luke in just four simple words, uh, who stood afar off. That is a perfect encapsulation of a leper's life. It resulted as a requirement of the law of Moses. If you had leprosy, highly contagious disease, incurable disease at the time, that if you had leprosy, if anyone was approaching you from a certain distance, you had to cry out, leper, leper, unclean, unclean, so people could know the danger that they were approaching and, uh, and then avoid you. And so it meant, obviously, as a result of this, that being a leper would result in a physical isolation, a physical distancing from people. But a leper was not allowed into the synagogue for the same reason. So there was a spiritual isolation that was a part of their life. They couldn't have contact with their family. So there's this emotional uh, 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 distance in, in their life as well. So it was a very, very hard life to be uh, a leper in the ancient world. So they stood afar off as the law uh, required. And then they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And uh, clearly Jesus understood and they understood exactly what kind of mercy they were wanting. And that was they wanted to be cleansed of their leprosy. They didn't want a coupon for breakfast at Denny's. Uh, I mean, this was the big need in their life. And you notice that as he's making his way, they lifted up their voices and they cried out to, to him. So they are men of faith. Uh, they are men of prayer. And so when Jesus saw them, he said to them, declaring obviously from a distance, go show yourself uh, to the priests. And so he uh, doesn't declare anything about their uh, being cleansed of their leprosy. He gave them but a single uh, command to do to go uh, uh, to the priests and 
uh, as we'll see in a moment, that when they turn to obey his commandments, so they're obedient men as well, when they turn to obey the commandment to go to Jerusalem now and see the priests, that um, they were then cleansed of their leprosy. When Jesus tells them to go show yourself to the priests, there was a ritual that was uh, commanded in the Old Testament in the law of Moses, and it was a ceremony that was to be performed related to a leper in the day of his cleansing. It's like a really weird kind of a, of a, a deal because lepers just... We have less than a handful of people in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, before Jesus comes along, who were uh, healed or cleansed of their leprosy. And so that God would take and give this uh, substantial portion in the, in the Mo, law of Moses for a ceremony that was to be performed over a leper who was cleansed seemed really kind of strange. It was like it never got used. And then Jesus comes along and he starts cleansing lepers. And, uh, and the, the entire uh, ceremony is a picture of Jesus Christ, two birds in a bowl and a scarlet thread. And, and we won't get into all of that uh, this evening, but it was all a picture of the Messiah who was to come, who would bring a cleansing to mankind of a greater leprosy than a physical leprosy, and that is the leprosy of sin. And uh, it's interesting in the scriptures, when leprosy is spoken about and when a healing occurs, it's not referred to as a healing, but as a cleansing, because leprosy is a type of sin in the scriptures, and there is no healing for sin until one day we're present with the Lord, but there can be a cleansing from sin, and Messiah provides it. So why does Jesus tell them to go to the priests there in Jerusalem and inform them, I am a cleansed leper Let's do this ceremony. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders are at this time, they are planning Jesus' death. They are planning his crucifixion. And yet he sends this stream of lepers to them through his entire public ministry and they show up and they say, we need this ceremony. And they say, well, nobody's done one of those ceremonies for 500 years or for 200 years or whatever it is. What a, and uh, let's look that back up. And they begin to look it up. And then, of course, they're going to ask, how in the world did this cleansing occur? Well, it was Jesus. He commanded us to come or he touched us and we were cleansed of our leprosy. And here is Jesus, even while they're planning his death, planning his crucifixion uh, out of their, um, their jealousy of him and his popularity with the people, he's still sending a witness to them of the fact that he is the Messiah in the form of, of these changed lives. And so it was, we're told, that when they went, their obedience here, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Can you imagine? You put yourself uh, in that place. And some of you, you know, you, if you've ha had or have cancer or whatever it might be, or some kind of a physical, major physical kind of an issue, and you turn and begin to make your way, and you are made whole. I mean, wow! I mean, can't even put into the words the emotion of, of all of that. And then one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, he returned to Jesus and with a loud voice, he glorified God, fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, this guy is like, um, 
from head to toe, he is so overcome by his gratitude for this cleansing. I mean, he worships with his mouth. He gets on his knees. He bows down at Jesus' feet. He prays and he glorifies God for the cleansing. He's, he is saying thank you in every way conceivable, uh, verbal and physical, for this cleansing. And then significantly we're told that he was a Samaritan. And as, as we'll see here in just a moment, the indication is, is the other nine were Jews. And this was uh, the lone uh, Samaritan. And so Jesus answered, and he said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not uh, uh, any found who returned of the nine to give glory to God except this foreigner, this Samaritan? And, and I don't know who he said this to. I don't think he said it to the Samaritan. He might have said it to the disciples who were present. He might have just said it to himself. Uh, where are the other nine? Uh, how do I get one person giving me thanks for this level of cleansing, this level of miracle in a person's life, and only one out of ten in him, a foreigner to the covenant of God, comes and gives me thanksgiving for what it is that, uh, that I have done? And, I, and I'm convinced as I read this account, to me verses 17 and 18 are very sad. It's sad for me to read it and to have Jesus be forced to say this, but it's a communication of his heart. And he's um, disappointed at what is happening here. And the other nine, they were men of prayer, they were men of faith, they were obedient men, but they weren't thankful men. And God did a great miracle in their life, and they had all of these other things going for them. But the failure to give Jesus thanks for the cleansing spoiled the entire thing uh, for Jesus. It was great for them. And it's important for us to realize that uh, we are in a relationship with God. And so um, there's two people in the relationship. So he's affected uh, by what we do or we don't do. Uh, he's not, uh, and uh, we're affected as well as it relates to him. And so the absence of thanksgiving is a, it makes this experience has been wonderful for them, but far less than it could have been and should have been uh, for Jesus, uh, all due to the absence uh, of thanksgiving. And uh, it really speaks to us about the importance of being. Uh, thankful for the things that we notice in our life that uh, that he does and um, and to lift that up to him and and then that realization that he recognizes it when it happens and something is diminished some great thing that he has done in our lives is diminished when uh, there's that absence of it and then he's allowed to celebrate it together uh, with us you notice in verse 19 that he then turns at this point, which tells me that he didn't direct verses 17 and 18 to the Samaritan, because now he addresses the Samaritan, and he says, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. So something about this man coming back and giving thanks uh, results in an even greater blessing being given uh, into uh, his life. And of course, thanksgiving is its own reward. 
in, in life. It, is, uh, uh, it, it, it enriches our lives. There's something about giving thanks for something that allows us to enjoy that something twice. And uh, uh, so, what's the old bubblegum thing? <laughs> double your pleasure, double your fun. But, but it's true ab- about life in that way. And so it could be that he, he just was being able to fully enjoy the miracle in a way that the others didn't. It's also possible that uh, as Jesus talks about his uh, faith here, that this man has put his faith in Jesus, not merely as the cleanser of his leprosy, but put his faith in him uh, as Savior. And now he has... Um, he has received the forgiveness of sins, the greater malady in the human condition, greater than physical leprosy, and, uh, and that he has been made well uh, spiritually uh, additionally. And as, as all of this is going on, there's a mixed group that remains around Jesus. There's still the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, and then Jesus' disciples are uh, with him. And so he was now... He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom uh, of God would come. And so Jesus starts to give them and us instruction concerning uh, the last days or concerning uh, the coming of of the kingdom of God. And so uh, he's asked by the Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Their view was that when the kingdom of God would come with the Messiah, that it would be a great uh, show of power and the overthrowing of the shackles of Rome and establishing, you know, the Messiah establishing his kingdom within the world immediately in this uh, a, a very kind of uh, showy way of a, of a conquering king. And that was their expectation, and they couldn't understand why Jesus hadn't done that three and a half years into his public ministry. And so he answered them, and notice that uh, these two verses here are directed toward the Pharisees. He said, the kingdom of God does not come, and he's correcting their view. He said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, it uh, it wouldn't come with Messiah arriving in human history in some kind of a a grand, uh, spectacular outward show like uh, they were expecting, but rather uh, that it would come to man in a relatively uh, very quiet and obscure way. Uh, and no better words to describe uh, the way in which the kingdom of God would come than how Luke put it in chapter 2, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so Jesus will come as a conquering king at his second coming, and what, what they expected in his first coming But in his first coming, he comes as he uh, describes uh, here. It'll be low-key, no the less powerful for it, but it's not going to be what you expect. Nor, verse 21, will they say, uh, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God wouldn't be identified supremely by some location. People saying, come over here, and uh, it's over here, come over here. over here, see here, see there, but the kingdom of God is present in the person of Jesus Christ. So when he says, for indeed the kingdom of God is with you, the idea is among you. Uh, The kingdom of God was among them, present 
in the person of uh, Jesus Christ himself and in his ministry. So he corrects uh, their misunderstanding. The Jewish religious leaders, they tended to look at the Old Testament. They saw two portraits there of uh, descriptions of the Messiah who was to come. They did see a suffering Savior in uh, 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 Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, other places. They saw that. But then they saw all these other passages about him coming as a conquering king. And of course, we all like the, the good, we all like the conquering king uh, deal, don't we? And, and so they kind of gravitated toward that and then neglected the other verses. And so they failed to understand that the Messiah would come in two comings, first as a suffering savior and then as a conquering king. And so he corrects them now so that they would be able to see the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus himself. Then you notice in verse 22, then after having spoken to the Pharisees, he now begins to speak to the disciples, to speak to us. He said, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not uh, see it. So there's going to be a time in the future, he tells them, in which he is going to be present, what they had enjoyed with him, his physical presence in the world uh, for three and a half years, that that is going to cease until his, his second coming. There's going to be a long period of time in which the Messiah is going to be absent, and they will long for just one of those days in that three and a half years uh, uh, while uh, waiting for uh, it, what they experienced there in, in, in waiting in his absence. And so he spoke here about the kingdom of God as a future event that he would set up uh, in his second coming. And they will say to you, uh, look here or uh, look there and uh, do not go after them or follow them for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in His day. And so when Jesus returns to establish His uh, physical kingdom at His second coming, it's not going to be a secret event. It's not going to be a hidden event. The entire world uh, will uh, witness this. It will be as obvious as Jesus puts it. It will be as obvious as a lightning strike that fills the entire uh, sky. So this great demonstration of power that they were expecting, uh, that will occur, he's saying, uh, at, at the second coming. And Jesus is saying that when I come again <clears throat> and establish the kingdom, At my second coming, you won't have to wonder uh, whether the Messiah uh, has returned uh, when that happens. And then verse 25, but, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he tells them all of these things, talking about uh, my second coming, talking about the establishing of the kingdom of God in the world, all of that uh, is going to be, uh, it's going to be preceded by his suffering and being rejected by uh, this generation, speaking of the cross and the beatings that would occur uh, just in a matter of days now. And, it, and as it was in the days of Noah, days of Noah was very, very wicked days, so wicked that God decided to destroy 
the population of the world with the flood. And so he said, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It is just allergies. But you might want to put a mask on. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So, uh, uh, prior to Jesus' second coming, there's going to, the world is going to be marked during the tribulation period by great, great wickedness. And likewise, he said in verse 28, <clears throat> as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and uh, destroyed them all. So uh, he's describing what the world will be like during the Great Tribulation period, marked by tremendous wickedness that uh, prompted uh, the two previous great judgments of God in the Old Testament, the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the context of a final destruction and judgment he will bring on the earth during the tribulation uh, period. And of course, all of these things are building in human history, uh, even as the second coming approaches, but then even as the rapture uh, approaches uh, as well. And even so, as he talks about the judgment here that came upon the earth, uh, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man uh, is revealed. And so the time of Jesus' second coming, again, is going to, not going to be marked by a great celebration or by the world sitting uh, on the edge of their seat, waiting for the Messiah, excited about His return, establishing uh, his, his kingdom uh, as the Jewish religious leaders uh, anticipated, but His second coming will be marked by uh, a great judgment, judgment on, uh, on an even greater level than the flood uh, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that day, verse 31, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn uh, uh, back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so, uh, in those days uh, preceding Jesus' second coming, uh, the Jews will need to separate themselves, Jesus declares, from all the ungodliness, all of the wickedness of the age. Of course, there will be the abomination that causes desolation at the three and a half year mark, the midpoint of the seven year tribulation. The Antichrist will go into a rebuilt Jewish temple. He will sit down and he will declare himself to uh, be God and demand to be worshiped as God. And at that point, the Jewish population of the world is going to realize we've been fooled by this guy. And Jesus says, when that happens, run for your life. Uh, don't take any time uh, to uh, delay because a great persecution is, is going to come uh, against, uh, against you. No hesitation at all. And that's why the remembering of Lot's wife. Don't follow her example when this comes because she looked back. She hesitated 
and then became a pillar of salt, or really a pillar of Sodom, a pillar of whatever it was that destroyed uh, Sodom. She became what was in, within, uh, within her uh, heart. And then Jesus declared, and I tell you, again speaking to now the disciples, not, not the Jews and the, in the uh, great tri- unsaved Jews in the, in the tribulation period, many of whom will become Christians, but I tell you, his disciples presently, us presently, that uh, in that night there will be two, speaking of the rapture, two men in one bed, and the one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together, working, and the one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And so you have uh, people who are sleeping, you have people working, you have people who are in the field. And so it speaks about a rapture of the church that will be worldwide, a rapture of Christians and some Christians will be raptured in their sleep. Wow, that'd be something, huh? Well, you might feel like you missed out on something. Well, all I knew is I just went to sleep. The next thing I'm looking to get Jesus. And, uh, but either way, it'll be good. He's got the uh, timing just perfect for it. But it, gives, it, it shows us that this is going to happen worldwide as he describes the, the circumstances people will be in, his people, at the time of, of the rapture with all of the uh, other uh, time, different time zones. And then they, the disciples, they answered, and they said to him, uh, where, Lord? This is the, the question that they have, and, and it appears their mind goes back to uh, the coming destruction Jesus spoke about. He used the word destroyed three times, and uh, uh, two times rather, in verse uh, 27 and 29. And so they're asking, where is this judgment going to take place that you're uh, talking uh, about? And Jesus answered, and he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered uh, together. And so uh, his return to establish his physical kingdom in the world at his second coming, to establish the thousand-year reign of Christ, as the Bible uh, describes it, uh, that it, it, it will it'll produce a, uh, first of all, a carcass. It's going to produce a meal for the, the birds of, of prey, and just as vultures gather to eat or to uh, judge a rotting physical corpse, so too Jesus will come to judge the moral and spiritual corruption of the world at that time. And the battle of Armageddon will be very, very messy. It'll be very quick, but it'll be very, very messy as uh, three great armies under three great leaders uh, gather in the valley of Megiddo, uh, to fight against Jesus, first of all, to fight against themselves and then unite to fight against Jesus at his second coming. And the description of Jesus' second coming and him inviting the birds of prey to come to a feast and to feast on kings and mighty men and so forth, all of that is found in, in Revelation chapter 19. And then in verse uh, chapter 18 here, and we remember those are no chapters in uh, the original uh, uh, documents, but I'm very thankful for the chapters. Uh, but uh, uh, then he spoke a parable to them, uh, the disciples, is the audience, that men ought, uh, always ought to pray and not lose heart. And that word then is a very, very important word to uh, notice uh, here in terms of its context. He's talking to the disciples, both then and now. And he's talking about 
what the world is going to be like at His second coming and what it's going to become increasingly more like leading up to it, leading up even to the rapture. And so it's going to be a rough and tumble world, spiritually, morally, sin. It's going to be uh, a place that is progressively moving further and further away from God and just unbridled, unlicensed uh, licensed sin. And, and it's going to be a, a tough place for Christians. And so he immediately follows it here uh, with uh, this, uh, this parable that speaks about the importance of persistence uh, in prayer. And in some of the parables, Jesus doesn't, uh, or, or the, the Holy Spirit doesn't give us the meaning of the parable ahead of time. We have the parable and then we figure it out from the imagery of it. Here, this is so important that the Holy Spirit in verse 1 gives us the meaning of the parable so we won't be guessing what it's about. And, uh, and it'll be clear for us. Clearly, the end times of human history and for uh, whatever disciples, including us, that would be alive at that time, it is going to be a world in which a child of God can readily lose heart, can readily give up on how awful things are uh, becoming, become very discouraged about the world uh, that they live in. It's discouraging right now in, in a lot of uh, respects, but it's got a lot of room to get a lot worse. One of the hard things about being a Christian is that our eyes are opened. So we see things with a clarity that other people don't see. So it's harder for us to watch these mistakes and these rebellions and decisions that people are making when we know where it leads. We know it leads in catastrophe. We know it's a disaster, whether for a nation or a world or an individual. So it's hard to watch how many needless casualties of sin are being heaped up all around us and yet the folly of all of these ideas on how to live and these freedoms to uh, commit sin and commit it's a goofy thing we live in this culture that we think the greatest freedom is a freedom to commit sin uh, but all that is is a freedom to pick out whichever sin I'm going to uh, put myself into bondage to it's no freedom at all but it's the shallowness of the speaking, with, uh, of the thinking within, within the, the, the culture. And so we see the casualties. We see the increasing hardness of hearts, not uniformly, but hardness of hearts towards God's voice, towards His Word, the authority of His Word. And, and it's, it's rough to watch. It's rough to be in the middle of it. You say, so, okay, what do I need to do as a Christian, in order to not lose heart in the last days. And, and I'm convinced we're in the last days. We're certainly closer to them than any other generation, but it all looks very ripe to me, scripturally. And he says, what we're going to need to do, a prescription for uh, not losing heart, is to pray. Is to pray. I was talking with somebody uh, very recently, and, uh, and they said to me, you know, I run into so many Christians and they're all so troubled about the world and they're so frightened and 
frightened about what the government's going to do and, and this and this and how in the world do I, do I talk to them about the, uh, what it is that where they are. And I, you know, I tell them that the Lord's coming back and I tell them this is, it's like what the, the, the prophecies say it's going to be like this and it's no comfort to them. They turn uh, away from it, so to speak, and, and won't allow it to be a comfort to, uh, to them. And so what do I do? And I said, well, j- just talk to them. Say, I, I, have a, I sense that you are very, very afraid. And what are you afraid of? And, and then because every person can be different, there's no broad brush for it. And then talk about whatever that issue might be uh, biblically. And one of the most important things that we can talk about, if a person is terrified by the condition of the world as a Christian in the last days, is to ask Tell me about your prayer life. How much do you pray? And, and of course, you're going to talk about prayer. It's one of the easiest guilt gotchas that we can ever do. But let me, let me exhort myself first and foremost, but then exhort us as well. The closer it gets to the Lord's return, the only way we will not lose heart is by praying. And we can neglect uh, prayer, maybe up to this point in our Christian life, but then there comes a point when all of us as Christians, and I'm not accusing us of not doing it, but all of us as Christians are going to have to take seriously everything that Jesus has said in His Word, things that we have felt before because of our Christian heritage that we've had the luxury to ignore. Jesus says, in the last days, the only way not to lose heart with what you're going to be in the middle of is to pray. And prayer is just simply a, a conversation uh, with God. I remember there was the November election that happened uh, here recently, and there was a particular result of that. And quite apart from the personalities, there were two very, very different uh, agendas in terms of uh, righteousness and pro-life and lots of different things like that. And, uh, and after the election, I uh, went to the Lord and I said, Lord, what am I supposed to make of this? How am I supposed to process this? How are you processing this from the vantage point of heaven? And I just began to talk it over with him. The, you know, the implications of what this change might be for Christian people in the light of a hostility toward Christianity and all. And then he answered me related to that, and I had what I needed from him in order to maintain perspective in the midst of it. So the necessity of prayer. Otherwise, we'll all get a terrible case of the ain't it awfuls, and we'll drive each other crazy and just speak fear into one another's lives rather than speaking faith. One of the things that happens when we talk to God, prayer is simply talking to God. And it is just merely taking whatever the issue is in my life, and I'm processing it with Him. And He's got the greatest perspective on everything. He's fabulous company. And, uh, and so sometimes you won't hear Him, how it works for me, and uh, as a result should work for everyone. Uh, I'm kidding. But... but uh, you talk things over with him and then there isn't like, you know, the, the sun gets covered by a cloud and hail begins to fall and 
there's this thunder that I recognize as the voice of God speaking to me. And I just keep talking things over and over and over with him. He guides the conversation. Verse might come to mind, a hymn might come to mind, whatever it is. And he has a way of just guiding us to his place. And so prayer is vital for regaining perspective in whatever trial that I find myself in. And in talking with him, we'll always walk away with our uh, fears. There'll be an exchange. Our fears will be replaced by faith. Okay, I see this now in the light of your word. I'm good. Thank you for this conversation. Boy, did I need it. And one of the nice things about talking with God in prayer is that you ever have a situation in your life that's so big, it's so messy, you don't know anybody else who's gone through quite exactly the same thing, and you want to talk to somebody about it, but you go, where do I even begin? I could, tell, I could talk to them for six months to try and explain every nuance of this, and they would not understand what I'm in the middle of or how it's impacting me. And we never run into that problem uh, with God. He understands, he lives inside of us. He understands immediately what it is that we're saying. We can pick the conversation up and, and, he, can, uh, and he can track with us readily. And so this importance of prayer in, in order uh, not to lose heart. And he uh, drives home this point, this very, very important lesson Uh, by uh, giving them a parable. And uh, he said, there was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So what else is new? I'm just kidding. If you're a judge, God bless you. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I was thinking about the Ninth Circuit, but it just came to my mind, and I I know that they've turned around here. So that's, that's... So... All kidding aside, he doesn't care about what God thinks about anything, can't be swayed by God or man. There was a widow that would come before him in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. She's been done a wrong. And she's a widow, so she's largely powerless uh, in, in the culture. And her only hope for getting justice here against her adversary is that this judge will step in for her. And, and he wouldn't help her for a, a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, uh, yet because this woman troubles me, she was coming to him all the time with this, I will avenge her on her adversary, lest by her continual coming, uh, she wearies me. And so this is what he lays out, and he said, she is moving me here uh, by her continual uh, asking for uh, justice here in in the situation. And the Lord said, uh, hear what the unjust said, and, uh, uh, and shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. And so Jesus isn't saying, now listen, God the Father, he's got some bad days. He can be kind of like a judge. He doesn't believe in himself and he doesn't regard man. 
And uh, so it's going to take a lot of whining, a lot of praying, and then pretty soon you wear them out, and then he gives you what you want. That's not what he's calling us uh, to do. Uh, Here is a proverb that uses contrast in order to make the point. In other words, uh, God is nothing like this judge. And if persistence in prayer could move a judge like this, then how much more quickly is a loving Heavenly Father going to be moved by our prayers? And so he says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And so here again, the context of the last days, though related to prayer, it applies to any kind of prayer but uh, the, when we pray on a daily basis or however often we pray it, uh, the, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, out of the Lord's prayer, God listens to those prayers. And even though he hasn't established his kingdom yet, is an answer of that prayer, a physical kingdom, he's saying, don't be discouraged by that. It is coming. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, uh, will he find uh, any faith um, on uh, the earth? And so the question that he raises here, that is, will he find uh, people uh, persevering and looking for his return? Jesus isn't intimating here that uh, there's not going to be any believers at the uh, time uh, of the rapture or, or believers at the time of his second coming. There will be a lot of people who become Christians during uh, the tribulation period. But he's asking the question really uh, to spur us to faithfulness in prayer, uh, given it, its uh, vital relationship to perseverance in, in the midst of, of trial. And so we can't really answer for anyone else in in, uh, in, in this regard, but Jesus has very lovingly and wonderfully told us a, a, tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous insight into uh, remaining steady and steadying on in the world in the last days, and that is the importance of prayer. And so it's kind of like Jesus saying, um, I know what's coming. I know it's not going to be easy, but it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay for you individually. It's all going to be okay for you in the world. Nothing is out of control. But you're going to have to stay in contact with me to maintain that perspective in the midst of of how messy the world is is, uh, going to uh, get. And so let's stay busy about God's calling upon our life and go deeper and deeper and deeper into prayer. And ultimately, circumstances will force us into that place just simply to survive. But why wait until uh, there is that uh, forcing that that goes on? Uh, Better to to begin sooner rather than later, and out of a desire than rather out of a necessity. While he was talking about prayer, he also spoke this parable uh, to some, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Um, I wonder who that might be. It was the Pharisees that are standing right there. Uh, they trusted that they were righteous and, uh, and they, uh, they despised other people. And so uh, Jesus has been talking to the disciples. Now he goes back to them and, uh, and he spoke a parable to them. Uh, he said, uh, two men went up to the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A little pointed. <laughs> You're going to figure this one out uh, very easily. So you picture them going to the temple to pray. You've got two people at that site of prayer. You've got a Pharisee and all of his self-righteousness, and you've got a tax collector, the lowest of the low uh, viewed by the Jews. Lowest of the low. And the Pharisee stood, and he prayed uh, thus with himself. Now, the one thing you want to, we want to avoid in prayer is praying with ourselves. That's a prayer that's going nowhere. That's a, that's a prayer that's useless. I mean, the prayer has to go to God for it to be a, a powerful prayer. But, but Jesus here looks and says, now here's the kind of prayer that a person prays when they're praying with themselves. They're not really praying uh, to, uh, to uh, communicate with God. And so this is what that kind of a prayer looks like. God, all right, it's a good start. You work God into the first word, Lord, uh, into the prayer, and then notice what the subject matter becomes the rest of the way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector, and uh, uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess, and the prayer becomes uh, completely about himself. It's just a brag fest that, that he is uh, engaged in here. I remember hearing an illustration about D.L. Moody, and he was uh, having a, a series of meetings in England, and uh, when you did these crusades that he would do, just even as today, you go into a city, you get all of the churches united to get behind this thing, and then sometimes you'll, in order to uh, make it come off, you have to give uh, prominent positions in the program to prominent pastors within the community. And so somebody's going to greet everybody, somebody's going to open it up in prayer, somebody's going to read a scripture, and, and all these things are handed out. And uh, one guy was asked to open the meeting in prayer before uh, D.L. Moody was about to speak. And uh, this was his moment to shine. All of these people, never been in front of a crowd like this. And he's going on and on and on. And D.L. Moody uh, realized that he was killing the meeting. And he got, jumped up out of his chair and he went to the front of the platform. And he said, while our brother is finishing his prayer, let's go ahead and move on with... Uh, our program here. And so uh, you can get into prayer where you've lost sight of God, you've lost sight of any kind of a context that we're uh, in the middle of, and this is exactly where this guy uh, is. And so he's full of himself and he despised the tax collector. And then the tax collector, he's standing afar off. He doesn't even go to the front of the, the altar or the place there. And he, and he wouldn't even raise up his eyes to heaven as, as he prayed. And, and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so his, mar his life uh, completely marked by uh, humility. He recognizes that uh, sin, or, or rather prayer, is a privilege and uh, that it is his privilege to be able to communicate to God, and rather than the Pharisee who felt it was God's privilege to listen to him pray. And so there's a total contrast between uh, the attitude of, of, of both people toward God 
and toward prayer. And so God tells us, all right, I'm talking to you about prayer. Let me tell you a few things that I don't like about prayer and a few things that I do like about prayer. I don't like prayer uh, to be uh, one that is a vehicle for self-righteousness where somebody comes to me and asks me for something not on the basis of grace, but on the basis of what I do and what I am. I, 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 I. And what, uh, and what I do like is when people understand the, uh, the privilege that prayer is and they come to me with humility, they come to me with, with honesty. And, and that's what he's uh, commending here. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man uh, went down to his house justified uh, rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's quite a principle and it's, uh, it's true uh, even, uh, uh, even related to uh, to prayer. And so uh, the, the uh, beautiful uh, condemnation of viewing myself as superior to other people or self-righteous and uh, a lack of awe in approaching God in, in prayer. Humility goes uh, a, a very, very uh, long, long way here in, in all of this. And so when he talks about uh, this here where he's talking about the fact that he left and he uh, and departed and that he was justified rather than the other it, the idea is that Jesus heard those prayers that God heard those prayers and then uh, answered uh, his prayers as a result and then uh, then they also uh, uh, mothers and fathers they also brought infants to to Jesus Jesus is a famous teacher. He's a famous rabbi uh, in, in the, the nation. The common people loved him as much as the religious leaders uh, hated him. And so the parents began to bring their infants to Jesus uh, that, and here's the reason, that he might touch them. And the idea is to lay his hands on them and then pronounce a blessing upon them. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful picture of of uh, parents, these parents right here, clearly they esteem Jesus very, very highly and uh, probably recognized him as the Messiah and as the Son of God, and they wanted his blessing upon their children, and so they brought their children uh, to him. There's something about raising a child, having a child that makes us realize we need help here, we need God's blessing uh, in order to be successful here. And I want, uh, and the most important thing that we can do with our children, the soonest opportunity we can have, but if we have children from infancy on as Christians, is to bring them to Jesus uh, uh, as infants as, as soon as we can. And so they wanted uh, his blessing to be upon them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Shoo, get out of here. This is a busy man. What are you doing here? And they're probably very, very they're probably trying to be very, very helpful here. Uh, Jesus, you, I mean, here we are, we're just reading through this and we'll continue on. It's an endless flow of activity that's going on around his life. 
warfare. He's carrying uh, the weight of the world, literally, as he's heading towards Calvary. And they're just trying to protect him from these parents that are coming uh, with, with their children. And they rebuked him. And Jesus then called the disciples to him, and he ended up rebuking them. And he said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not uh, receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. And so he let this, said, let the little children come to me. And what he did is, you know, we rarely do we look at a little child, uh, not an infant, but a little child, and say, this child has something to teach me spiritually. No, we're older, and we've been around the block a few times, and Everything a child, uh, uh, all uh, in a relationship with a child, all we would be doing is, is doing all of the teaching and they would be doing all of the learning. And yet Jesus said concerning salvation, uh, adults are not the example concerning faith. Children are. And, and how readily children will. Not with a childish faith, but a childlike faith. They're trusting, they have a sense when a situation is wrong, something is wrong. And they also have a sense when someone can be trusted and, uh, and uh, the, the eagerness with which they will take and hear the truth, even about Jesus Christ, hear the truth spiritually, and then readily receive it uh, into their lives. And so they are the example to us in, in this regard. One of the interesting things that happens to us, it's happened to us for 35 years, um, because we have this policy where uh, you have to be 10 years and above to come into the sanctuary because um, I know I'm a very dynamic speaker. I mean, I just know that about I'm very charismatic and, and uh, just like lightning in a bottle. And, uh, and I know I can carry the interest of, of eight-year-olds any time I want, but um, they tend to get bored in here. And uh, because they can't understand a single thing that's happening. None of it is on their level. And then what happens? Mom and dad pull out the keys. Then they pull out their credit cards. And they pull out everything that they've got on them in order to entertain the child. And then the child begins to beat the keys on the seat in front of them. And sitting in the seat in front of them is the husband of a wife. She's been praying for him for 50 years to come to church and hear the Word of God and attend a church service. And all he knows is that there's a kid sitting behind him kicking his seat. Like a 15-hour flight from Delhi to San Francisco. And, uh, and so the whole thing is kind of a loss. And so I recognize my limitations. And so we have this, the children's ministry where great effort and great work and resources and people are put together to bring the Word of God and the things of God to them on their level. And, uh, and not endeavoring to be uh, kept entertained, but actually to grow spiritually. And I can't tell you how many times through the years, it's probably the biggest huffing and puffing that we get at the back door where someone can't come in with their entire family, including their small children, and then this is the verse they quote to whoever's on the door. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, and, and all of that. Yes, we have an entire children's ministry for that. It isn't like there's a sanctuary or nothing. 
uh, it's there. Or if you want to sit with your children personally, then it's in the, in the fellowship hall. And so um, I just wanted to get that off of my chest. Uh, but, but the point is, is this, is that uh, actually there's a, a, a meaning of it, is that you know, if we hear it and, it's, and, it, and that's thrown in our face regularly without um, any sense of proportion or the realization that, no, they work very hard to provide an option for, in this context, for your children to be blessed, the, the best way that they can be blessed, well, if that gets thrown at us, then it's going to be thrown at you as well, and at least you can understand uh, why we have uh, put the policy in place that we have. Well, we'll stop there and we'll pick things up uh, next week with uh, the rich young ruler. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer.